Hello, and welcome to another episode of Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. On this very special episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Elder and Sister Hafen. They wrote a book together called Faith is Not Blind, published by Deseret Book. Our interview actually took place at the Deseret Book offices, and it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, the book is also wonderful. We get into talking about how this book not only can be helpful to missionaries, but to people who are ministering to one another, maybe even if you're a parent ministering to your missionary out in the field that may be having some type of a faith crisis or a faith challenge in their life and needing some help to navigate that. So their book is a great resource for people that are studying as part of their mission prep. It is great for missionaries in the field. It's also wonderful for those who have returned home and are navigating their own life and coming to increase their relationship with our Heavenly Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. So sit back and enjoy this interview that I had with the writers of the book, Faith is Not Blind, Elder and Sister Hafen. Joining me on this very special episode of the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast is Marie and Elder Bruce C. Hafen. They wrote a book, and we're going to be talking about that later, but here's a quick bio on them. Uh, Marie was born and raised in Bountiful, Utah. She attended Brigham Young University to study English, where she earned both her bachelor's and master's degree. And Elder Bruce Hafen was raised in southern Utah after serving a mission for the church in Germany. They married in 1964, and they are the parents of seven children. Brother Hafen received a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University and a Juris Doctorate from University of Utah. After practicing law, he became an assistant to BYU President Dallin H. Oaks, and from 1976 to 78, he was director of evaluation and research for the LDS Church's Correlation Department. He then served as president of Ricks College from 1978 to 1985. From 1989 to 1996, he was provost at BYU before being called as a general authority from 96 to 2010 when he was given emeritus status. Following that service, brother and sister Hafen were called as temple matron and president of the St. George Temple from 2010 to 2013. Since then, I guess they've just been sitting around doing nothing, and so they decided to write a book uh, that we're going to be discussing, and the book is called Faith is Not Blind published by Deseret Book, and we're in their offices today doing this interview. So thank you guys very much for coming on and, and being guests on the podcast. We're glad to be with we're you, We're glad Nick. to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. So you guys are not new to writing together, and in this particular one, I noticed that there were some notes about the, your approach to writing this one, that you had different voices that you kind of traded off throughout the book. How did, what were some of the decisions that went into that kind of writing approach? Well, we would talk about things. Uh, for quite a long time, we would have some consensus, although not always, because sometimes he would see things differently from the way I would see them. And so we would try to represent both points of view. And sometimes I would just write, like in the prologue and the epilogue, and there's another chapter in that there about climbing to know God. Um, and then there were a lot of chapters where he wrote, and then we would edit and talk and condense and keep working on it until we had a, a finished, polished kind of pro yeah. project. Probably the beginning of the answer to your question, Nick, is what happened in the class where we met at BYU. Yeah, that we were going to get to that. Because it's very, it's very significant to the topic of this book. It was a very interesting class. 
I think it was called uh, Your Religious Problems? Yes. Yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah. That was the official name of the class, and it was taught by the dean of religious education. Yeah, tell us more about that. Who who was just a wonderful man, West Belknap. He died much too young in his 40s. In that, that, we met in that class, and the format of the class was that each student would come uh, to uh, to teach a portion of a class, I think probably half of a class, on a religious problem or question that he or she had been interested in and had done research on. He'd present the, the problem, uh, the issues, his findings and conclusions, and then everybody in the class had to write a two or three page response of what they thought, uh, how to respond to the, to the problem. And uh, that, when I first met Marie, it was hearing her talk about her religious problem, which was how can I have the Holy Ghost more in my life? So these were not all big church history issues, but some of them but were. Some of them were. And the, f- the format and approach of the class made it so natural for us to have. That's when we first began talking in the way that we're talking in this book. Uh, I guess that's really the way I would say it, is that our gospel conversation goes back to, to that period. We both brought our own history to that, of course, but the idea of talking things through together, as Marie has just said, is just kind of native to us. And yeah. and I think that's the that's the spirit, the attitude, the perspective that we hope uh, flows out of, the, of our pen into the book. Yeah. So one of the things that I had kind of as a as a preparatory thought process to this is it does seem like there are a lot of people nowadays that are talking about this word faith crisis. I'm I'm not a big fan of that word. I think it's a little overly dramatic, but it's how a lot of people describe their experiences that they're having with difficult and challenging issues regarding be it church doctrine, church history, various different things. What prompted you guys to address this topic at this time? That's a uh, it's an important question, Nick, and and it helps it, it lets us give just a word of background and perspective in this long term discussion Maria and I have been having all these years. We first began to talk about these issues in more general terms. I gave a talk at Rick's College years ago, probably before you were born. Uh, <laughs> it was called "On Dealing with Uncertainty." And in that talk, I was expressing a concern I had from just watching students. And it was really a question about personal growth and learning. And the the concept that I tried to introduce is that there's a difference between the gospel ideals and reality or being realistic. In the context of missionary work, probably the since you're doing a mission cast, maybe I could illustrate that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty common for missionaries to get a very idealistic view of missionary work in the MTC. And then we have seven grandchildren out all over the world now, all the way from Africa to Thailand wow. to uh, Cambodia. And uh, what they're finding is that... In Nebraska. And, yeah, with Nebraska in between. <laughs> uh, and I, they're finding what I think all of us find when we go on missions, and that is that there, there are these surprises. There are... It, it, this, things aren't happening the way they're supposed to happen, so you assume. Yeah. You know, the ward mission leader isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Who told these members that this is how they're supposed to behave when you bring an, an investigator to, right. to church? Well, pretty soon you discover that there's a bit of a gap between the ideal, hoped-for version, which is still 
ideal. That's still hoped for. But people aren't there yet. And it's not just the people in your mission. It's everybody because it's part of life. And so this, this gap between the real and the ideal uh, is, is very common. Uh, we mentioned we've, we've, uh, we've written a book about marriage. Uh, there's another example. I'm giving general examples to say that the, the idea of, of having people think about or t- the difference between the ideal and the real and knowing that it's okay that that difference is there. The question we're trying to, to uh, pursue is how do you manage the gap between the real and the ideal? And that's, your, whether yeah. that's missionary work or whether it's marriage or whatever else it is, that's the context in which we see these religious questions. So for us, it is, it's not the faith crisis, it's, and it's not even a crisis. It's a growth process. And when we can see the, the, the current religious issues in, in that context, uh, at least for us, that takes a lot of the fear out of it. it. This is these questions are not something to be afraid of. They're something to learn from. Yeah. And so our whole orientation and approach is that we can learn from those hard experiences rather than being disillusioned by them. And uh, that that has all kinds of applications for missionaries uh, and return missionaries and um, and and many others. Yeah. And maybe even more positively. It's an opportunity, this gap, to choose to give God a chance. Yeah. To choose to give his son a chance or yeah. his church a chance. Maybe another little example of sure. someone who went through this process uh, because um, Bruce had an assignment with the Utah jails and prisons recently. Yeah. And we were at a meeting. It was a testimony meeting in the Utah State Prison with a women's branch, and they can express their testimonies there. And one woman came up to the microphone, and she said, when I was a little girl, I loved to bear my testimony. I would run up to the microphone, and I'd say, I know the church is true. I love my mom and dad. I know Jesus suffered for my sins. And then, you know, run and sit down. And she said, now all these years later, and all this life Later, we might call that the complexity. Yeah, I'm standing here behind bars in these prison clothes, and those words mean something entirely different to me than they did then. Yeah, I know the church is true, I know he suffered for my sins. She was in what you might, might call level three of this process. I don't know if you want to yeah, talk a little bit let's about actually the levels. talk about that because in. In your book, you you address this idea that there's kind of a natural tension, this gap that exists, mm-hmm. and then you introduce this concept of three different stages that mm-hmm. feel like a progression. And tell us what those three stages are. Maybe the best way to to lay a foundation for that, Nick, is to is to quote Oliver Wendell Holmes, the the famous uh, judge who who once said, "I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity." but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. but <laughs> it's talking w- in circles. When, when you break it down into, into, into its natural parts, it's really very, it's natural and it's hopeful. So we've tried to do that. We've The simplicity before complexity, that is before we encounter a lot of complexity, is a stage of innocence. We're, we're not tested by experience. There's a scripture that says you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. So uh, stage two is complexity. 
it's where we're encountering the gap between the real and the ideal. And, and that can happen in many ways. It's not just church history or church faith questions, as we've been saying. It yeah. is, it, it's everywhere. Yeah, for missionaries, it could be a companion, for yeah. example. <laughs> and, and so struggling with uncertainty and opposition is that second stage, complexity. We go beyond that, or we can't. Not everybody does. Unfortunately, some people kind of get stuck in complexity, and they can become cynical and confused and and want to give up, uh, whether that's leaving the church or leaving the mission. They haven't sensed the hope that's out there, the simplicity beyond complexity. All of, this, uh, all of the trials, the difficulties that you're going through, it's not just that you can endure them with the Lord's help. You go on to, to something far better. Yeah. And that's what Marie was talking about with the example she just gave. Uh, I could give you a mission field ex- yeah, let's example hear it. of that. Uh, that was. Uh, you gave a couple examples in the even first chapter. Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe this is an appropriate time for this one because yeah, it fits it. what you're talking about. This would be an illustration of the, how those three stages apply. Uh, I was a young missionary in the early 60s in Germany. We met an American couple, very bright, well-educated people. He was there in the, in, the, in the military. They just had their first child. And we struck up a conversation with them somewhere that led to a, an opportunity to teach them. They had read the Book of Mormon. They'd gone to church. They'd prayed. They were ready to be baptized. And then he got a letter from home. His name was Paul, Paul Knopp. Paul's sister was married to a wonderful Christian man from Nigeria, and Paul's family was alarmed that he was talking to Mormon missionaries and was believing what they were saying. And so the family letter said, Mormons don't allow African men to have their priesthood. They're racist. You don't want to talk to them. Well, this came as a total shock to them. And I must say, when when we talked to them and they told us what had happened, it was a total shock to us. Yeah. Uh, and they said, we can't talk to you anymore. We're sorry. Uh, this is just, as I still remember Paul's words. He said, we feel like we've been set back 400 yards. That's complexity. Yeah. And he, But they gave us one last chance to talk. They said, you can come to say goodbye, but we don't want to see you anymore. So we were in that little apartment in Frankfurt, and they explained the problem. And then they turned to me. I was the senior companion. I had never heard a discussion of race in the priesthood. I had no idea what to say. I was aware that there was a church policy. And I was really speechless. And kind of in the very moment, uh, I remembered something that I had read in my personal scripture study two or three months before. I'd been reading the book of Acts. I said, why don't we turn to Acts and read the story of Cornelius? So we read the story about Cornelius the Gentile receives a revelation, and Peter receives a revelation. Uh, the two talk, and this leads to the huge decision on the part of the first presidency of that era, Peter, James, and John, with the council at Jerusalem. The Gentiles can now receive the gospel. Well, we read that story, and I was sitting there thinking, why, why are we talking about this? Yeah. But it kind of felt, as we talked about it, that this was related to their concern. But I couldn't have told you why. There were no promises. But I think, as looking back on it, I think what that offered was a plausible explanation, not a conclusive one. Uh, But whatever it was, they felt more of of the spirit of it than, I think, the historical part. So we separated, they prayed. We didn't think we'd ever hear from them again. Then they called and said, come on back. We want to talk some more. They ended up joining the church. 
they raised their family in the church. They're, they both have passed away now, but they've served a, a mission as a couple. They went from simplicity through complexity to the simplicity beyond complexity because they, uh, they trusted uh, the Lord. They gave him the benefit of the doubt. And I think what that story illustrates is that you can give the Lord the benefit of the doubt in what we're calling stage three, especially when there is a plausible explanation. The Lord is full of plausible explanations. There are lots of things that he doesn't give us conclusive, 100% foolproof answers to because the search to find the answer and to trust him keeps us moving and growing in ways that build our faith. Keep giving him a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, as you have both gone about your work. You've had a lot of experiences with members of the church in various parts of the world. You, as a temple or a temple president and temple matron, you probably saw a lot of missionaries and young couples who you might say were in this stage two of or kind st- of navigating complexity. Yes, or stage one. Or even stage one. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you guys best address this issue with them? Uh, one thing that I tried to keep in mind, because as the matron, I was, would give what they called the instruction to those just coming for the first time. Yeah. Because it was someone who, a friend of Bruce's, who came to him and said, how come the, the temple's all about Adam and Eve? I mean, how come the story isn't about the life of Christ? If Christ is the center, if Christ of the is the center, I mean, all the pictures in the temple center around him. A lot of them. So we talked about that, and finally came to the conclusion that actually, if you think about it, the story of Christ's life is the story of his giving the atonement. But the story of Adam and Eve, and we stand in for them. We're invited to become almost as if we're Adam and Eve is the story of their receiving the atonement. So they're the pattern for how you go through simplicity to complexity and then to a more informed, mature simplicity. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. I like that. Yeah, one thing I like about that, I'm glad Marie thought of it, is that it it shows that there's a doctrinal foundation for this concept that's is right there in the Adam and Eve story. Yeah. So that's a way of saying this is not just a faith crisis. This is not issues about church history. This is faith crisis in the largest possible sense about how do you live in mortality. My guess is that in, in the pre-earth life, uh, we all had some idea of, of the idyllic version of mortality. But then when we get here and come face to face with... Uh, uh, the lone and dreary world, there are lots of surprises. Yeah. And, and it can it is very complex, and a lot of people just get buried in it and, and never do come out. Can I add a little example? Absolutely. We were in sacrament meeting this last Sunday, and two young women were going on a mission. And uh, they both were so excited. Everything was so awesome and so super awesome. And... We loved what we were doing, and we're looking forward to our mission. Well, you know that when they get on their mission, they're going to hit reality. There's going to be a (laughs) wall. And it may be, like we've said, it might be a companion. It could be a question from an investigator that they have. Could be culture. uh, The culture. They'll find difficult things, maybe even in their their own faith, because they were so, what we would call innocent, so level one. But yet, look what they have to look forward to. If they go into a complexity, look what they have to learn. Look at the nuances. Look at the color. Look at the variety that they may not have seen up to this point. But it's going to be difficult. Yeah. 
But if they see it as an opportunity to, to learn from, to grow from, they'll come closer to God as they do that. Their testimony will deepen so that they, they won't be affected by those faith crisis issues. And then they'll be in a more mature level three or stage three. Yeah. I've, I've got the sense as I was reading through your book that this is not, just to be clear, this isn't a book that's going to provide answers. It's, it's one that helps develop right. the approach to navigating this issue. Is that we, right? We need to find our own answers. In fact, maybe we could mention we, this research that we recently ran onto. Somebody called this to our attention. Some people studying employment patterns in the workforce. So this is a very general topic. They were trying to figure out why younger employees have a hard time dealing with complex issues in, in the workplace. And they did a lot of research on it and, and found... Well, ambiguity, things that were uncertain... Uh, in fact, the, the subtitle to this article we read is, As work gets more ambiguous, younger generations may be less equipped. Mm. Uh, it's, and it's, it's sort of a reflection of the Internet age when every, all the answers are there for us. People don't have to solve their own problems. If you just have to ask Siri or ask Google Maps <laughs> and there's an answer to everything, you just push a button to know everything, you completely short-circuit the process of figuring things out and learning. Well, did Adam and Eve have to figure out a few things and learn? Sure. The Lord could give us lots of answers that we're not ready to hear. And that's why we need to find our own. So the approach of this book is to... to invite people, yes. Invite people to get deeper. Well, deeper and sort of be at peace about the process. Right, that right. Rather than freaking out just because I don't know the answer and screaming and running out of the room, that there are reasons why the process of finding it will strengthen us. Yeah. So what are the challenges that, that we're facing in the missionary force today, if you will? Is, it seems like everybody's getting younger. I mean, they're leaving at 18 and 19. This is a very mature exercise, I think, spiritually mature to, to be willing to go through these different steps. And we're asking missionaries to not only go through these steps themselves, but to help other people who are going through it. So what are some of the ways that maybe a missionary in the field would use this in ministering to someone? Okay, that's really a good question. And there's one little chapter toward the end of the book that's called uh, Climbing Toward God, where it is a missionary experience, a young missionary who is challenged by Korahor. And so eventually what he does is say, okay, I'm going to let Korahor debate Alma, but I'm going to represent both of them, let them talk to each other, so that he had to go through the exercise of, okay, how would Alma answer this? Well, what would Korahor say? Until eventually you, you get to the point where he asks Korahor, are you happy with what you are doing? What do you see has been the result of what you're doing? What about your children? So that he sees through this exercise what it has is meaning to him to develop his own faith to be deep enough that he can answer that question from Alma's point of view and then from his own point of view so that his own mission becomes deeper and his relationship with God becomes stronger. 
Let me just build on that. Uh, I want to tie it back to the research we mentioned. I'm, I'm quoting from the article where this research, this is workplace research. This isn't right. about religion. That's actually, it makes it more persuasive in terms of this is a very human phenomenon and it's a commentary on the internet age and, and some of what it has created. These authors say that... Uh, Generations Y and Z have just as much desire for novel, challenging work as older workers, but they lack the skills and confidence required to manage uncertainty when it occurs and are more likely to become anxious. Well, we're all hearing about missionaries who have anxiety and depression, and some of this is because they, we, we have to learn better, better ways of teaching them the process we're now discussing. And sometimes that happens through tough love. I'm thinking of, a, of another story from the book that's a missionary story. Uh, this is in the, I think the chapter is called uh, The Witness More Powerful Than Sight. And that begins with a, one of our favorite missionary stories. This was actually in New Zealand a long time ago when we were visiting that mission. The mission president told us this had just happened. There's this, uh, this strong, handsome young man from uh, Wyoming or Idaho who had, who had uh, come on his mission and really hadn't seen so many people ever in his life as he saw on one day in Auckland. And it was freaking him out. He just couldn't handle it. And he told his mission president, I can't do this. I, I, I'm going to have to go home. That was his first response. And that's how a lot of people respond now when things are hard. And as this says about workplace uh, anxiety, if, if it's ambiguous and difficult, and I don't have Siri there to give me all the answers, what, what am I supposed to do? So, well, the president talked with him, keep at it. So this young man tried, uh, I think, for several months. And finally, he came to the mission uh, home with his bags packed. His companion was there. He said, I'm sorry, president, I've got to go home. I cannot do this. And I, you've talked to me, and it's helped, and I've prayed, and I've tried. I just, I'm not cut out to do this kind of stuff. So the mission president brought him in the house. They went into the office and said, well, uh, the president said, I guess we better call your family. I'll have the secretary make arrangements for your flight. We'll, we'll tell them what time your plane will get home, but they need to know you're coming. Okay. So he was talking to his father on the phone. The father listened. It was, it was hard for both of them, and it was kind of a very sober conversation. And suddenly... The father must have said something that was a bit shocking. The president telling us this story said, the missionary sort of looked stunned, and then he pulled the phone away from his ear, looked at it, and then hung up. And the president said, what happened? He didn't hang up on you, did he? He said, no. Well, what happened? What did he say? He said, cowboy, up. <laughs> and the president said, cowboy up what in the world does that mean <laughs> and the missionary said it means i'm staying <laughs> well this was a rodeo kid yeah. what does that mean in a rodeo when a Stay somebody riding horse. a bull or a horse is about to yeah. sit down yeah. the the yeah. people running the rodeo say as about they're about to open the gate and the, the, out into the, the arena. animal is going to go out and, and buck and snort and kick and buck this guy to kingdom come. And they say, cowboy, up. It means hang on. Well, that's all his dad had to tell him for him to get a message that related to the world he'd grown up in. Well, when we were on that mission tour, this young man was near the end of his mission and was a, had turned out to be a wonderful missionary. 
So we, we asked him, yeah. is the cowboy up story true? And he said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just changed his perspective. He yeah. changed his attitude. And it gave him the courage and the motivation to move forward. Yeah. And that kind of brings up, actually, I wasn't intending to ask this question, but we've had this recent policy change with missionaries being able to call home on a weekly basis. It almost feels like the information in this book, the Faith is Not Blind book, would be something that parents of missionaries would want to become familiar with because those calls home are probably going to become much more prevalent. That's a really good point. Yeah, it is. And and if parents are like that father, you know, that doesn't mean that you just get tough. Uh, I think it would be tricky for parents. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be tough or am I supposed to be permissive? The parenting is going to go on. So if they've had a pattern of teaching this process, it can continue. But right. it's a process. They shouldn't come all unstitched when the missionary finds something hard any more than the missionaries right. should. But if they can understand this enough to to teach how to hang in there, how Say, to have this patience. This is where you are in the process. Just this, keep going. Yeah, you, yeah, I can just hear... I can hear uh, us saying to some grandchild, we've got these seven grandkids yeah. out right now. Maybe, maybe with one of them, we'll have to say if they're going through a really complex experience uh, that's making them think, "I can't do this anymore." I don't think we'd say "cowboy up." That's probably not our context. <laughs> but what we might do is quote the the survivor of the Martin and Willie hand carpet heart experience, who said, "In our extremities, we came to know the Lord." Yeah, that's wow. why missions stretch people. Yeah. Or if they love literature, or they love John Milton, because he didn't think a cloistered virtue was one that would enable a person to go out into the world and and deal with reality, to deal with life in a way that would take them upward toward the goal. Yeah. Of- See, I I personally, when I was reading through the different stages and the material of the book, I felt that I have found myself comfortably in that third stage which, interestingly enough, puts me in a position where I'm not afraid of people traveling from the first to the second, the second. Yeah, or the second to the that, third. Yeah. I, it, there's nothing that worries me about it, because I know that if you just stick with it, you're fine. And if your relationship with God is deep enough, you can handle... Could you take a quick little story on that? Yeah. Um, because uh, we know of a young woman, when she was 18, she had heard from somebody and she took it on board that women and the priesthood was an issue. And she took it so much on board that she relinquished her church membership, gave it up. Several years later, she was at a university, and it turned out that her roommate was going to take the discussions. Holly, we ca- we'll call her Holly, sat in on the discussions and started to think, hmm, well, I haven't thought about this for a while. And then the missionaries were challenging her roommate to pray. And so she thought, hmm, you know, I haven't done that for a long time either. Maybe I will just try that. And so she did that night, just knelt down and said, Heavenly Father. And as soon as she said, Father, she felt that frost start to melt, to thaw. And from that change in her perception of her relationship with God, over time it got deeper and that we're talking about months, even a year or two, until finally somebody who'd known her in her hometown said, but Holly, I thought you had this big issue on women in the priesthood. And she said, well, you know, that was an issue, but now it's just not that big a deal. 
he knows what he's doing. Right. And I took a chance on him, and I'm glad I did. I'm okay. Yeah, she was rebaptized. Uh, yes. In yeah. that process, rebaptism and just complete activity, complete focus. And yeah, I love that story. I th it wasn't Holly who referred to that feeling she had with the Lord as the closeness. The closeness. Oh, okay. The closeness. See, I, I've come to understand faith as not just something that we kind of believe in. And I know sometimes we use that, that word. But that faith is much more a relationship yeah. with, with our Heavenly yeah. Father. Yeah. And, and it's related to, to and often people will say faith related to action. What kind of action? It's the kind of action we're talking about here. Right. It's when you face something really hard and you have to dig and strive and stretch and yearn and, and hurt. And you, you're growing. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's growing pains. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you guys for both coming on the podcast and sharing your insights. The book is Faith is Not Blind, published by Deseret Book, can be found at Deseret Book. Can I make one other comment? Please. Make it use or not. Please. But when you say, I'm now comfortable in yeah. level three, I think anybody who feels comfortable in level three may find that they've got another, another complexity out <laughs> he, there. He does. He's yeah. on his way to Hong Kong That's tomorrow. Right. That's right. <laughs> yes, because I think the Lord will keep giving us the complexities beyond our settled simplicity sure. because he wants us to keep growing Absolutely. and to become more and more used to taking a chance on him and striving to, for that closeness with him. And, and when you go through those cycles, you tend to trust that that cycle will, will come yes. to a faithful yes. resolution. More confidence. Don't yeah. give up the confidence that right. you already have. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you guys again. And we'll, uh, we'll put a link up for people to click on and go purchase a copy of Faith is Not Blind. Thank you again for coming on. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Elder and Sister Haven. I think they're wonderful people, and I do hope you check out the book because it is filled with wonderful examples of people navigating these challenges that they have as they grow and develop in their faith. The book itself is actually rather profound, even though it's also rather simple. And so I highly recommend checking that out. We will have a link to purchase that book on our page at ldsmissioncast.com, specifically for the one on this episode. Please stay tuned for our next episode of the Latter-day Saint MissionCast by subscribing in iTunes, on Stitcher, or on Spotify. We'll see you next time on the Latter-day Saint MissionCast. <laughs>